Good afternoon and welcome to the Finance Hour. Whether you're listening live on Jair or indeed on our podcast, this is the show where we try and make sense of the world of business and finance and hopefully help you make better financial decisions. My name's Ruben Zelwa. I'm, an, I'm the owner and financial planner at Adapt Wealth Management. We're a boutique financial planning firm in Malvern that work with business owners, professionals and those planning for retirement. I've been doing these podcasts for about a year and a half now, and there's a whole big bank of them on iTunes, so head over to iTunes and search The Finance Hour, and you can find a lot of our back episodes. Otherwise, you can always go to the Adapt Wealth website and go to the podcast section. Now, a quick word from our lawyers. Uh, Nothing that we say today should be considered as personal advice. We're just having a general yak. Uh, If you're going to want to act on something that we've said, please make sure you get some advice from your financial planner, your accountant, your lawyer, or even your mate next door when he comes over for a barbecue. But certainly don't trust us. So uh, the topic of the week this week is the budget, budget 2018, the winners and losers. I'm joined today by Michael Chu, who's the director of Orange Wealth, uh, which is another wealth management firm. Um, Michael's been on the show several times before, uh, and we're very happy to have him back today. Now, before we get started with Michael, uh, it is time for Ruben's Rant. Ruben's Rant. Now, my rant of this week is all about the budget. Now, as you know, the budget is a forecast, or maybe a guess, of what is going to happen in the future. They have something called the forward estimates, which is really their long-term guess about what's going to happen with the uh, economy and the government uh, cash flow over the next four to five years or even longer. But what I want to understand is why is there so much attention on the budget, on the forecast, but very, very little attention to look at what actually happened? Companies report their financials regularly. They have to do it every three months, and they're always measuring it against the budget against what they proposed. But it seems to me with the government, all we focus on is what their forecast is and not what actually happens. Now, that's not 100% right because there is something called the mid-year economic and fiscal outlook, uh, which comes out around six months after the budget, which nobody takes any notice of at all. That is where the government sort of revised their figures. But the media just don't get onto this at all. I would have thought it was a really good opportunity. And you would have thought politically uh, the other party would jump on and say how irresponsible the government was for not hitting the numbers exactly. But it seems to be like no one takes any notice of that mid-year economic and fiscal outlook. So my rant is it's great to have a stab at what is going to happen in the budget, but let's see more accountability for the government with what actually has happened. Okay, uh, we're now going to have a very short break and I'll be back with Michael Chu to discuss the budget winners and losers. Welcome back to the Finance Hour. The topic of this week is Budget 2018, the winners and the losers. I've got Michael Chu with me today from Orange Wealth. Michael, thanks very much for joining me to discuss the winners and losers of the budget. Ruben, uh, great to be back. Thanks very much for inviting me again. I think we did the budget uh, last year as well. Um, Oh, we did? 
So, uh, yeah, good to get into having a look at what they're doing with the economy, what they're doing with uh, our money. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, discuss what we think. Yeah, well, I know you're super excited about this episode, Michael. Uh, This is a very, very exciting budget. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well, budgets budgets aren't necessarily the most exciting thing. However, this one is optimistic, at least. Absolutely. it's positive. All right, well, let's just maybe start before we get into any of the detail... Uh, let's give me your overall impression, not just really of what it means for every individual, but what the numbers sort of look like and what the general economy looks like on the back of what they've forecast. I think the big uh, the big thing is that there's more money in the economy. Mm. So um, the number that um, Scott Morrison was talking about was, I think it was about thirty four billion more income over the next five years for the government. Than what they expected? Correct. Which has fallen in their lap. So it's Mm. not... They they didn't have any projections around this. Um, The economy is doing better, which is generating more income for the government. Mm. And this budget is about spending a bit of that money. With the election coming up uh, within probably the next 12 months or so, um, I think they're keeping some in their coffers for election promises. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because... More money. I mean, they've basically made got that more money from more income tax from employment. Is that is yeah. that your take of where the extra how the extra money because employment's been strong? Yeah, that's uh, my that's my take as well. Yeah, more jobs, uh, more employment, more taxes, and that's yeah. that's that's driving a uh, that's driving uh, more income, and it, it relates to the policies they put forward, but also. Um, bringing the budget back into surplus, which is something everyone talks about at the end of each budget. Yeah, well, they talk about that happening in the uh, in the never-never. I mean, bringing it back into surplus in, I don't know, 2000 and, what is it, 2022 or something. Yeah. I just find that absolutely ridiculous, you know, making forecasts out that far. It's going to change so many times in between now and then. Yeah, well, this is, and this is exactly the the uh, the point of this uh this income it didn't it appeared from from nowhere they didn't they didn't recognize it coming yeah. in so from year to year their forecasts have to change yeah, so they, there, there's yeah. no way they'll hit a specific date or time in the future no. but it does give you a view as to where things are heading generally yeah. in the economy and and how they're managing um how they're managing the um uh, the the tax money that we essentially yeah. um, give them to money. Well, what's interesting, I'm actually not sure if there was any increase in company tax, uh, if companies were making more profits. I didn't I didn't really recall if that was a factor as well. I didn't say that either, but they definitely have talked about the reduction in the company tax rates. Yeah. And that's obviously been in the media for the last yeah. uh, couple of months. Yeah. So, um, but that, they're having a huge amount of trouble getting that through. Yeah. So but, in, in general, yeah. they're, they're looking at the economy and saying it's pretty positive. Yeah. Um, and they're wanting to make uh, some more decisions to keep strengthening the economy. Yeah. And it's um, – I've heard some commentators talk about it being a Santa Claus budget – being something that's jolly, where people are, you know, Santa Claus is giving giving lots of presents to everybody. Yeah, I think we'll find when we go through the detail that there is a little bit of that, but it's constrained. Yeah. It's cautious. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. And one of the things that is talked about a lot now is, yeah, even though employment seems to have been pretty good, uh, salary growth or wage growth is very, very low. Yeah. Uh, so that really. I think is an important factor because that means people's living standards are not rising as much and they don't have as much money to to spend on making the economy go round. So that also seems to be something that they're focused on. I think in the budget they, you know, wage growth is going so low at something like 1% to 2%. 
Um, but they were anticipating wage growth to be much higher in the budget, and apparently that has a very big impact on what their long-term forecast. I think they were anticipating wage growth of 2.75% or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and we do need wage growth because mm. households are dealing with big mortgages, yeah. and that's consuming huge amounts of yeah. uh, of the cash that people would otherwise spend in the economy. So it's a bit of a balancing act. That's right. And I think also with the banks are going to be, they already are tightening their lending standards. They're making it more difficult for people to to borrow money on interest-only basis. And there, there is a lot of discussion how a lot of these interest-only loans which people have are going to, over the next few couple of years, have to convert to principal and interest because yeah. generally your interest-only period is about five years and that that's going to represent a big cash flow strain on people. Yeah, so um, one of the balances to that might be tax cuts, right? Yeah. So if you don't have wage growth, um, mm. one of the ways to um, to support people is through through tax cuts. I know we're we're going to talk about that, but that that can then have a have a uh, an impact on things like housing. The more money yeah. in the economy, uh, potentially, the more people are willing to pay for housing. So it's it is a it is. Um, uh, it's not a science, that's for sure. No. Okay, so let's then have a bit of a chat about the tax cuts uh, that they're proposing because always that's probably the biggest issue. Uh, there is a couple of things which are like a middle-income tax offset which is coming in from um, 2018-19. So that's that's giving a, like sort of an extra tax rebate for people on incomes actually all the way up to 125000 but it does sort of phase out along the way. Uh, so, uh, and they're also there's a low income tax offset which is going to increase from four hundred and forty five dollars to six hundred and forty five dollars. I mean, there's a couple of hundred bucks here and there in those things. There's nothing, there's nothing sort of earth shattering about yeah, any of that. I think I think the opposition coined it the um, hamburger without a shake yeah. uh, uh, rebate. So it's about ten bucks a week or just over ten bucks a week. Yeah. It's not going to be. Um, it's not going to make a significant difference, but they are hoping that it creates some more spending in the economy. And I think that's the the idea. I think they want to they want to provide tax cuts. Yeah, they're being really cautious about how they do that and yeah. roll it out. Which maybe that's maybe that's okay. The opposition came out and said they'd almost double the rebate. Yeah, made it nine hundred something dollars. Generally for the lower to middle income earners. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I didn't. To be honest with you, I didn't actually take any notice of the budget reply. I just think the budget reply is just such a stupid, ridiculous thing. That's the only one I noticed. Do you? Did- that, that that particular oh, statement that was the only part, was the of, only the part of the budget reply, reply I noticed. I didn't, yeah. I didn't pay attention to anything else. Yeah. That's just because uh, I think the uh, the spin doctors for the opposition, they, they get the message right. Yeah, so well, it resonates and sticks in the back of your head. Yeah, well, all they do in a budget reply is pick on the things that they can probably easily pick on. And, you know, they don't have to give anything super substantive themselves. All they do is pick on the government. Yeah. I think the interesting thing around tax cuts and spending money is that there is a bit of money to to be spent, and this budget doesn't represent all of that. So mm. um, I think over the next 12 months... They'll start announcing election, more things. Both, both parties will announce uh, quite a bit of spending in different areas yeah. to help them um, try and drive votes. Yeah. Um, so that... So that that would be really interesting to see. Yeah. Okay. So the other thing is the other thing which is more impactful, but it's you know it's super long term stuff. Is looking at changes to the marginal tax rates over time. So there's not much happening in this their forecast until 2022, where what they say is they'll uh, increase the threshold for the 32 and a half percent tax rate from 90,000 to 120,000. 
And then probably the big one, which they say from 1 July 2024, although I don't believe this will ever happen, uh, they're talking about um, abolishing the 37% tax rate and having everyone earning uh, from, uh, from, let me get this straight, from... 120,000 to 200,000 will be on the same tax rate. Yeah. Yep. So they're actually getting rid of uh, a 37% tax rate. Now, that is quite significant uh, if that goes ahead. There's a lot of discussion about the, you know, how fair that is. And I think what people get very confused about is there's, you know, what's your marginal tax rate and there's your average tax rate. Yeah. So people will look at it and say, oh, you know, if I'm earning 120000 or if I'm earning 200000 I'm paying the same tax. It's actually not the case because your average tax rate is basically, you know, the average of all the different uh, all the different levels that you pay. And so someone on 120000 might pay an average tax rate of 20%, but someone on 200000 will probably pay an average tax rate of well over 30%. It's a tiered, it's a tiered structure we have here in Australia yeah. and a lot of other places around the world do as well. I, I think the complaint about it benefiting the... Um, the top in, end. In general, they say the top end, but I'm not sure that it's always... Like $120,000 now, if, if, you're, if you're earning that that amount of money that's those people don't feel rich at all right no um not with house prices the way they are mortgages and just the general cost of living correct so um so there's got to be some there's got to be some balance um in in that discussion the other thing is you can't if you're not paying much tax um you can't reduce their tax rate, people's tax rate anymore. Right. I think we've had this conversation, perhaps last, the last budget. Yeah. If you're paying a very low tax rate, um, the only way to reduce the tax further is to stop paying tax or for the government to pay them. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, you, I think your point about the average tax rate for mm. a person based on their salary is the right one to talk about mm. rather than you know, what scale they fit into. Yeah. Well, it is interesting. You mentioned uh, getting something back from the government. And I've talked on the show before about the Labor's proposal for franking credits rebates so that they're going to make it uh, almost impossible for you to get a refund of franking credits. And that's something that uh, low-income earners and superannuation funds as well have relied on to really boost their income. Yeah. So in terms of the way that's going to affect low-income earners, it's quite uh, it's quite strange that a labour policy is actually going to end up meaning that you know, lower-income earners are not going to get that benefit. Although they did end up peeling it back a bit and saying, if you're a pensioner, you still will be able to get the rebate. The proposed labour policies around tax, um, superannuation, uh, the way companies are set up and um, mm. uh, negative gearing, yeah. uh, which will feed it right into the next election. Yeah. All of those are really interesting to watch how they yeah. unfold because and they've they also could have got, some major impacts. Yeah. And they've also got, uh, they also put a proposal out about family trust as well, yeah. which yeah. Uh, people that's have probably right. forgotten about now, but that's going to reduce the ability for people with you know business owners or people with a lot of investment assets to split their income you know, to, to people on lower incomes. So you'd have to say Labor's been quite bold in terms of, you know, laying out some of these tax, uh, you know, these tax planning that they've got, some of which are going to be very unpopular, particularly yep. that Franken Credits one. So they have been in a way a bit gutsy by doing that. The question is, is you know, is that going to cost them? I don't know. Yeah, and and I don't know. I mean, they're in a pretty good position in terms of the next election. I know this mm. is a budget conversation. We're talking about the election, mm. but they're kind of related because it's policy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the things that is unknown and that 
uh, time will will tell is do these policies negative negatively impact the economy mm. because people don't want to invest or because mm. people find other ways of um, of managing their money. Yeah. So it's, it's we need a balance across low income earners, middle income earners, and high income earners, but we need yeah. it also to drive the economy, which benefits everybody. Yeah. Look, it's interesting. I've one of those arguments against you know about marginal tax rates getting them lower is you want to keep giving people the incentive to work. Yeah. I don't know for some reason. Never really makes sense to me that someone will want to work less because they're paying higher tax. I mean, if they work a bit more and earn more income, they're still keeping a fair chunk of it. Maybe, you know, well, at worst case, they're only keeping 52%, but likely more like 60 to 70%. I've always found that a bit of an odd argument. I know in some cases it may be the case, particularly when you look at uh, the cost of childcare. I think if you if you roll that into the picture you know, and you're paying high rates tax, plus you're paying a huge amount in childcare, I do sort of get that. But I think it's often overstated the impact that a marginal tax rate has on someone's desirability to go to work. Yeah, you're right. I don't think people make decisions based on, about their work based on their Mm. marginal tax rate. Mm. So anyway, that's interesting. So look, uh, we'll talk a bit about some super changes. I mean, nothing totally earth shattering here, but a couple of things. First of all, uh, there's always been the issue of you know people with low super balances uh, under the age of 25, they join up a super fund or if they're doing casual work and there's automatic insurance in that fund and then it can pretty much eat away and knock off their super balance pretty quickly. So they've basically put something in there that you people, rather than having the insurance automatic, you've actually got to opt in to, to, to get the insurance uh, for new accounts uh, for a person under age 25 or for any members uh, with accounts below $6,000, and also for people whose accounts have been inactive for 13 months. So all of them are going to have to uh, opt into insurance rather than having it go automatically. I think that's generally a good thing. It's interesting, a number of years ago they introduced, I think it was with the My Super Rules, where they introduced that compulsory insurance that everyone had to have in their super, and now it looks like they're, they're going the other way because maybe... Yeah, there's a concern of insurance premiums eating away at people's super. Yeah, I I think I think it's good. It makes sense that mm. the the accounts and the people that they're talking about um, probably don't know they've got the insurance. That's so right. So they're paying for something that um, there's a low chance. Although there is a chance of them claiming on that insurance, yeah. But in that young bracket, there's a low chance of them. There's claiming. a low chance. Yeah. Um, they don't know they're paying for it anyway. Yeah. And. Um, and they don't have a lot of funds in there, so it's eating away at that. So it kind of, That's it's right. kind of, it's a common sense actually. What what yeah. that policy yeah. is. I, in general, I believe pretty strongly in insurance because I've seen, um, I've seen people of all ages rec- rely on insurance to get through life. Yeah. Um, so when you see those examples of people having hardship and needing to fall back on the insurance that they've got, mm. you see why it's so critical and important. Um, but at the same time, should we be should we be saying people should pay for something that they're not using or they don't get or they don't even understand? Well, the other problem is is apathy, or particularly with young people. They might you know, never choose their super fund, so they might end up with two or three super funds, you know, yeah. which have all got their own insurance you know, parts of it, and then, then it you know, knocks away. I think on average, I can't remember what the number is, but on average people in Australia have like you know over two two point something super funds, I think. Don't yeah. quote me on that. Yeah. But I think I'm pretty sure the average was more than – Definitely well over one super fund yeah, per and, person. And I think there's another policy or, or budget measure in there for 
lost super as well. Yeah, and um, consolidating and... So I think the, the ATO will have a requirement to automatically cons- find yeah. and consolidate super on behalf of yeah. somebody within some criteria. Yeah. Well, it's definitely gotten a lot easier to consolidate your super now uh, using ATO portals and the like. In the old days, it used to be a whole lot of um, different forms. And sometimes it can still be that, but but it's definitely easier than what it used to be. Yeah, and fees is a big killer of investments. So yeah. the less fees and um, you know duplication of insurance policies and those type of things that people have, uh, the wealthier they, they're going to be in the long run. Yeah. Okay, and now sort of at the higher end, you've got the self-managed super funds, which are obviously a very big part of the super system now. And uh, until now, it's always been you can have a maximum number of four members in a super fund, so that can it's generally family, although I think business partners can be members of the same super fund as well, but otherwise it's really restricted to family members. So they're talking about increasing uh, the number of members from four to six. So you know, if you've got a slightly bigger family, you could have all the children involved. Maybe you throw your son-in-law or your daughter-in-law in there as well. Uh, which is interesting. I haven't actually, to be honest with you, seen the real the real reason for this. I think they just want to create a bit more flexibility. There are uh, complexities when you add more people to the super fund be- around how the control is allocated. But uh, it looks to me like they just want to increase the flexibility a bit. Yeah, I don't think this is a big one. I- I'm not sure what the their intention was with it either. Mm. But um, one scenario I can see is if you want some scale, and scale is mm. important, um, so, for example, if you were buying a property yeah, that's in, a, true. in a self-managed super fund, yeah. to borrow money within that structure, you need serviceability. Yeah. So, if you have two extra members contributing to the super fund, that means you've got more serviceability, you can borrow more money. That's right. Um, plus, you need a certain amount of liquidity in the super fund um, to, be able to, uh, to be able to buy the property. Um, so, that could add to the liquidity. So, yeah. that, that scenario, you can see that kind of scenario playing out with six people it might mean that people who are younger of age um and don't quite have as much money could get into a property in a super super fund as one strategy but other than that i'm I'm not sure what the what the other key benefits would be look not that this is related but there is a technical issue with those uh refund of franking credits there can be a benefit having more people in the super fund because if you have members who are actually paying tax in the super fund, not in the drawdown phase, effectively franking credits can offset their tax. Yeah. So, you know, there is, from that tax point of view, if Labor gets in and they put that strategy in place, there can definitely be a benefit of having more people, more people in the accumulation stage contributing to the super fund. That could quite significantly improve the tax position of the fund. Yeah, and that's important. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the other one is they've they've over time they're trying to increase the ability for older Australians to put money into superannuation. So traditionally, there's always been that work test. If you're over over age of sixty five, you've got to work forty hours uh, within a thirty day period during the financial year if you want to get money into super. Last election, they introduced that uh, home saver. Uh, downsizing one where basically if you were selling your home moving to a smaller one you could put money into super without satisfying the work test now they've also introduced another concession in terms of people over 65 uh, but under 74 to put money in if you've got less than uh, $300,000 in super you can do a uh, a contribution I think it's up to $100,000 without having to meet the the work requirements. Okay. So that's an interesting one. I said they want to give people 
older people the ability to still make some contributions to super. Yeah, I think if you've got uh, if you've got balances and three hundred thousand at sixty five is not a really significant balance in your superannuation fund. Yeah. Um, if you've got kind of low balances, but there's a way of topping that up and uh, essentially um, uh, saving you some tax um, and and allowing the superannuation system to work for you, then that's a good thing. I don't know how significant it will be for. The majority of people, yeah, no. Okay, well, look, we're just going to take a very quick break now that we've uh, got the super, and we'll talk about some of the other aspects of the budget when we come back from this quick song. Welcome back to the Finance Hour. We're talking about the 2018 budget, the winners and losers. I've got Michael Chu here with me from Orange Wealth. Michael, let's uh, have a bit of a chat about business tax. Now, there's nothing really significant here, but... They have had for a number of years this $20,000 instant asset write-off. So if you buy a piece of equipment, a computer or a forklift or something like that that costs up to $20,000, you can get a write-off and claim a tax deduction uh, all at one hit rather than in the old days having to depreciate it and claim the tax deduction over time. Yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, they're, I think they're extending it for another year. They've done that. Maybe once or twice. Oh, I reckon they've done that a good few times. Already, yeah. yeah. Look, the incentive is that um, if you're investing in your business, yeah, um, you're hopeful that the business will grow, um, and they're trying to encourage that investment yeah. um, rather than – so they're, they're, they're incentivizing business owners by saying, well, we'll give you the depreciation all in one hit yeah. so that you've got more cash flow and that you know you can use that asset straight away. And I, as a small business owner, I think that's a pretty good idea. I think yeah. it's really helpful. Well, it's interesting. I wonder how. I mean, they keep once as they keep doing this year after year. I wonder how much effect it has. Like probably the first year, I don't know when they put this in. Like the accountants that I spoke to said, "Oh yeah, everyone's calling me up and buying their new iPhone or whatever it is." I wonder how much this actually affects. But what they've also done is they've. It used to be only for, for small businesses with turnover up to, I think, half a million dollars or so. Now, actually, this measure allows businesses with turnover up to $10 million yeah. to actually write it off. I, I think it. I, what's probably interesting, and we don't have the stats on this, is what people are using, what people are buying now. Mm. So what, do you, what can you buy for under $20,000 that makes an impact to your business? So I think for mm. computers and stuff around the office, yeah. uh, that, that has some productivity impact, which yeah. is good. Um, but I suspect for... Th- for people in industries like manufacturing, farming, mm. some of those other industries which require equipment, if you can buy things under that $20,000 mark and get an immediate return for it, then that's, yeah. that's a big deal. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it definitely does help. And I guess, you know, the small business is always an interesting part. It's a, They call it the real driver of the economy. There's just so many, you know, small businesses out there. Actually, it'd be interesting to see if in the budget they talk about, you know, contribution of tax from small businesses versus big businesses. I mean, I still get the feeling that, you know, small business owners are battling out there. Mm. Uh, I think it's just a, it, it is tough. The competition's getting tougher. Uh, rental, you know, particularly for anyone in retail, rents are still fairly high. Um, so the, you know the government really does have to does have to do whatever they can to really help small businesses because there is just so many people employed by it and they're working very hard and often working hard for you know really just for a salary or maybe even lower than what they could get if they worked as a salary earner for a big company. Yeah, uh, small business is a bit of a passion. Mm. Uh, activity, right? I worked in corporate before yeah. uh, starting out my small business and definitely the conditions are really are really different. Um, mm. If you don't support small business, there's hu- a huge number of jobs that are um, 
that are, are, are driven and work through um, the, the the tens of thousands of small businesses around. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the government needs to support. Yeah. Um, support that part N- of the economy. N- now, here's a really weird one, right? They're removing the tax deductibility of non-compliant payments to employees and contractors. What it's is- really bizarre. What they're saying is, is if you pay money to employees and contractors when you really should have withheld some PAYG but you didn't, right, you can't get a tax deduction for that anymore. So I, I don't a, fully it's a, get it's it. It's a penalty. It yeah, like a penalty. it's something like... If you, yeah, if you don't withhold the PAG or the contractor doesn't give you the ABN, uh, then you can't claim a tax deduction for that payment. I don't know. It's somehow trying to crack down on the uh, on the black economy. Is that black economy? Okay. Well, yeah. something like that. But basically, I think it just means businesses have got to be a bit more careful uh, in terms of how they pay and making sure that they deduct the pay-as-you-go tax. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, I'm not sure about that one. It is... It is I- yeah, I don't know where that's come from in terms of what's the incentive for it or what they're trying to fix. <laughs> yeah, well, obviously they're they're just probably trying to um, trying to cut down on on tax avoidance, tax evasion, yeah, and that yep. sort of thing. So that's probably yeah. There's a few other little tax things. There's some change about for non-residents, but once again, not going to affect many people. Uh, the other aspect of the budget, which is not insignificant, is the social security. Mm-hmm. I think so. Uh, a couple of things here. The first one is is they're increasing the pension work bonus from $250 to $300 a fortnight. So for age pensioners, uh, if you're earning, generally speaking, there's two tests. There's an asset test and an income test. Once your income goes over a certain amount, your age pension will reduce commensurately. But what they've got is they've got these incentives that they've got limits. If you earn up to $250 a fortnight, you won't be uh, penalised in terms of losing age pension. They introduced this a few years ago, and now they're increasing that threshold to $300 per fortnight. So I guess they want to uh, reduce the disincentive for people uh, who are on the age pension to work. Yeah, I don't think that's good. I mean, yeah. that just it kind of encour- like you said, encourages people to work. Um, and and people, pe- uh, people who are in that kind of retirement phase, they do want to continue to work. Like, yeah. I don't think it's... I don't think... Uh, society today, there's this retirement date, and you stop working altogether. I think for a lot of people, they want to continue to work into their into their seventies. Yeah, and just reduce the amount of work that they do, but choose the type of work that they do. So this is this is really good for those people. Yeah. Um, so that's that pension bonus scheme. The other thing is is a pension loan scheme. Now this is something that people won't know a huge amount about, but a pension loan scheme effectively allows people to borrow money from the government against their uh, against their house, effectively, for people who are retired and on the age pension. So what they can do is they can borrow some money uh, from the government to effectively top up their income. Now, it used to be quite restrictive how this worked, right? So you had to be on a part-age pension, right? So if you were on a full-age pension, you couldn't access it. But if you were on a part-age pension, so say you were earning part of your income from your investments and part uh, income from an age pension... Um, you could actually use this scheme to borrow a bit more money and get extra fortnightly cash flow, which would top you up to being on the full age, like you're on the full age pension. So it was basically a mechanism for part age pensioners to be able to increase their income. So it was quite restrictive. Uh, and now what they're doing is they're actually increasing the flexibility of this. 
right? So what they're doing is they're saying anyone at age pension age can do it, right? Regardless of whether uh, you're a full age pensioner or you've got no age pension, if you're over 65 or well, they're increasing that to 67. Uh, once you're over age pension age, you can access it and you can access up to an income of up to 150% of the age pension rate. So what it's doing, it's allowing people to use the equity in their property to boost up their income um, in quite a responsible way. There's still limits on how much you can draw down on this basis depending on the value of your house. And the interest does accrue on the amount that you're drawing down uh, and that interest rate is 5.25% per annum, right? Now, there have been a whole lot of reverse mortgage plays out there in the market, although a lot of them have gotten out of it, but the banks have at some point have been involved in it as well. Usually their interest rates are quite a bit higher. Uh, so this is a, a much better system, a much more equitable. I mean, I don't think the government's trying to make money out of this. They're simply trying to, um, you know, to recover the cost of funding. So this is, this is an interesting one. I think, you know, it's going to be one that's going to be more important over time because people, as they draw down on their assets with interest rates being so low and the like, and people living longer, um, and you know the value of house was going up so much. This is going to be an increasing, an increasing thing. So I think that this is actually quite significant. Yeah, um, uh, your point about reverse mortgages and that term is uh, fills me of uh, with images of people trying to take people's homes. Um, so yeah, it is it is a bit of a negative term, and and um, and I don't particularly like it. I think this is not that. I think this is. Um, um, the government really trying to help people um, maintain their standard of living, yeah, and and have some lifestyle in their retirement, which is really it's the right thing to do. Um, the mm. cost of living um, now is very high, and often um, your home is your biggest asset, and you can't do much about leveraging that asset to um, maintain your lifestyle when you stop working. Yeah. So this gives people that opportunity. Um, to do it, and if you're on an age pension, um, it's not age pensions aren't living wealthy. It's 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 Absolutely pretty limited. Not. So, um, if you spoke to anyone who's on a full age pension, their lifestyle is is pretty lean. Yeah, um, so absolutely. I think this is great. I think it's really yeah. good. I think it's I, I think it's really good. The the thing about it is is it's only you can only draw it down like as a fortnightly amount. So you can't take a lump sum out of you can't do a lump sum of say fifty thousand dollars or so to renovate your house. Yeah, you can't go on a world cruise and That's right. Yeah. So which a lot of those the bank ones, the reverse loans they had were more structured around that that you, know, you want to get a lump sum out. Um, but this is I think much more this is more the way it should be done for these. Yeah. Reverse I like mortgage. your word responsible. I think that makes that's yeah. that that hits it on the on the head. Yeah. So um, look, as I said, I think this is going to be be an interesting one. I mean, there's always complications with this stuff as well. You you've got a reverse mortgage, but then what happens if you need to move into an aged care facility? You know, and then where does the money come from for that? Uh, you got you got one spouse still living in the home and. So, so there's actually the quite devil, a bit the of the devil's in the around. detail, as they yeah, say. there is. And look, yeah. last week I did do an episode uh, on aged care um, with Sarah Bell of Next Direction, uh, which was really good. But I mean, yes, all these things sort of do meld into each other. So there is still some some impact of that. So those are two things around uh, around social security for age uh, pensioners. So there's also uh, some things on, on childcare as well, which we were talking about off air. Do you want to Yeah. So explain um, the government's for a while had a policy change around um, supporting childcare. Um, uh, 
they're essentially so the policy the way it works today is if you have a child in childcare there's a cap on the amount of rebate they'll give you. It's I think it's seven and a half thousand per child. Yeah. Um, and they'll pay essentially fifty percent of your childcare fees up to that cap. Um, it's pretty straightforward actually. Um, the new model, which is in this budget, but they've talked about this policy for a while, um, is essentially means tested. Yeah. So um, there is there is no cap over. So if you earn under a hundred, let's say hundred eighty, I think it's just over hundred eighty thousand as a family yeah. household unit. Um, there will no longer be a cap on the amount of um, uh, rebate that you get from the government. Mm. Um, and then from 180000 up to, I can't remember the exact amount, it's around 300000 I think, um, that uh, uh, it's, it's, it's tiered so that you, um, as, you, as your income, family income goes up, you receive uh, caps on the amount. So for some people, if you're if you're a high income earning family, let's say you're on three hundred fifty thousand for your family, mm. it's likely you won't get any rebate anymore, yeah. Um, yeah. which will really hurt those people who have two people working professionals mm. and um, two kids at childcare. Like yeah. I can see that that that's going to hurt a lot. Um, uh, but for people under one hundred eighty, it can help. They are changing the. Uh, way the rebates calculate, so mm. it's no longer fifty percent of the um, of the fee. It's yeah. based on a very complex formula. I've done it for my family, and I still don't quite understand it. <laughs> there's a there's yeah. some calculators online that you can go through yeah. uh, to try and work it out, but it's based on the number of hours the childcare centres open each day, how many days really? you're in there, plus the amount of time that both partners are wo- both people are working in terms of hours. Comes up with some magic numbers that tell you what your um, what you're going to get back. I looked at it for my two girls uh, and our family, and it ended up being similar. It ended up being to similar. To what you get now. To what I get now. Yeah. Um, my girls are in childcare two days a week. I looked at yeah. if I extended them to three days a week. Yeah. Um, and we were, we would be worse off at mm. three days a week in the, the new system compared to what we were in the old system. And when does that system come into place? I think it's July. I think it's July 1. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's July 1. So um, they've been working it out for a while. And, and, and if you're in the childcare system, you've probably got emails and you've been doing MyGov surveys and a whole yeah. bunch of other stuff to try and work out where you sit. Um, but, yeah, it, they put that in this particular budget to fund it. Yeah. Okay. And, look, there's a whole lot of other stuff around aged care as well, uh, which is basically the government's putting more funding into it, uh, creating more places in aged care uh, facilities or funding more more low, low um, places for low-income earners and also increasing the benefits um, for the packages for people to be able to age at home. So that's helping. I have to just have a quick laugh at one thing I've just seen here is the government's uh, my aged care website will be upgraded the government's providing funding of 61.7 million dollars over two years basically to update a website that's amazing isn't it <laughs> so how did they come up with 61.7 million uh, i mean how, how does it cost that much to upgrade, upgrade a website so they would have done some uh some study or they would have had some committee work yeah. out what the uh what the requirements were, yeah, uh, and then they would have gone out to some type of estimate estimation process. I think uh, it seems like a big number. Um, the complexity in government websites is they've got all this data, 
yeah. all around the place, and they're servicing heaps and heaps of different types of customers. Yeah. Um, so they've got to try and work out how to do it. I w- that's not justifying the sixty-one million, because <laughs> you know, if you're a small sixty-one point seven, if you yeah, if you're a small business and you go out and get a website, you'd be looking at, at, at saying five grand is a reasonable price to pay for a website. Yeah. So this is a, a a big multiple on that. But um, uh, yeah, who knows? Who knows? Very interesting. Okay, well that pretty much gets us towards our end of our budget analysis. Uh, as I said, it's been it's been riveting. Uh, <laughs> definitely going to have you again uh, next week on the show, Michael. Uh, so thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Ruben. Uh, uh, happy to be here. Happy to come along anytime you need some comments. Yes, I definitely will take you up on that. I'm going to take a quick break, and then it will be time for my propeller head of the week. Okay, now it's time for my propeller head of the week. Propeller head of the week. My propeller head of the week this week is once again about superannuation coming to the end 30 June. Uh, there's a new uh, method of being able to claim a tax deduction for super contributions this year. Previously, if you were earning a salary or more than 10% of your income was from a salary, the only way to get money tax deductible into super was to get your employer to salary sacrifice. Now, you can still do it this way and it still works very well from a cash flow and tax perspective, but sometimes it can be difficult to get your employer to put the money in. So what you can do from this year is even if you're earning a salary, you can put the money in yourself directly as a personal contribution and claim that tax deduction on your personal tax return. So particularly if you haven't been diligent in salary sacrificing throughout the whole year, you can still do this in one hit uh, towards the end of June. There is a bit of a process you need to follow, a special form which you need to sign and submit to the super fund and then give to your accountant to make sure the deduction is claimed, but that is very doable. Okay, well, that's it for our show today. Thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, If you'd like to uh, listen to previous episodes, please uh, search The Finance Hour on iTunes. If you do do that, I'd really appreciate if you'd leave me a review. That will just mean that we can reach more people. Otherwise, you can find back episodes of the show on my website, adaptwealth.com.au. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.